Uh, but uh, if you are older than third grade, I would ask you to get your Bible out uh, and uh, turn with me uh, to John uh, chapter 12. We're going to uh, be re- continuing in our, our study uh, there. We only have a, a couple more uh, weeks uh, in, uh, in John before I kind of take a break for the summer. Uh, so uh, our study is, is uh, winding down. We'll break before we, we get to John 13. But uh, this morning, I want you to think about, it. is it possible to be a secret Christian? Meaning, can you... Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in your heart uh, without confessing it with your mouth. And that, that message of the gospel, that, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, who lived a, a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death and rose again on the third day, uh, and that He is the only hope uh, for the salvation of mankind. Uh, that we are all sinners uh, who have rebelled against God and are uh, separated from God by our sin. Whoever looks to Jesus is is forgiven. Uh, whoever looks to Jesus is uh, rescued uh, from the wrath of God and, and reconciled to God. Whoever looks to Jesus in faith is uh, brought into the family of God uh, as a, a son or a daughter, a co-heir with Christ. Uh, but do you receive all of those uh, blessings of the gospel uh, if, if you are a secret believer, if you are believing in your heart, but you refuse to acknowledge anything outwardly? Well, that's what our, our text is going to, to look at this morning. We're in uh, John chapter 12, and we're in uh, a section, verses 37 to, to 50, uh, that are uh, a commentary from the, the Apostle John. Uh, he began uh, this gospel uh, back in chapter 1. The first 18 verses are kind of setting the stage uh, for Jesus' public ministry. Uh, all of the, the themes that uh, we, we saw throughout uh, the first 12 chapters were introduced uh, in uh, the, those first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And now, uh, as the, the public ministry of Jesus is, is coming to a close, as we get to John 13 uh, and beyond, it's going to be the, the private ministry of Jesus to his disciples. So in kind of a bookend to the, the public ministry of Jesus, the Apostle John gives these sections uh, that, uh, that show uh, how uh, Jesus has proclaimed himself uh, to the nation of Israel and how Israel has responded. Uh, if you look with me at what we're going to, to study uh, this morning, uh, we're going to study verses 42 and 43, but I would like to begin reading at the beginning of this section, which is in verse 37. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. So that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. And he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. And these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And he spoke about him. So the Apostle John is explaining why Israel rejected the Messiah. But right after he says that Israel rejected the Messiah, in verses 42 and 43, he's going to give an exception to that. Nevertheless... 
Many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Uh, And uh, this uh, portion that we just read is actually very, very similar to what uh, the Apostle John said at the very beginning of this gospel. Uh, I'm going to read to you. You can turn over to to John chapter 1 and look with me at verses 10 to 13. Uh, In in those verses, we're going to have a a, a similar uh, statement being made. There's going to be an indictment against unbelief. Look at me beginning in verse 10 in John chapter 1. He, speaking of Jesus, the true light, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. And He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Uh, and there's a, there's a note of, of tragedy there. Jesus came to those who belonged to Him, who were His own, his, uh, the nation of Israel, and they rejected Him. They did not receive Him. But after uh, this indictment is given, there's an exception made in the next verses. But as many as received Him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So what we are in the middle of uh, is uh, we studied the the indictment uh, in verses 37 to to 41 two weeks ago, uh, and now we get to, uh, to study the exception. Uh, the indictment against Israel was that they had rejected the Messiah, and, and they had rejected their own Messiah out of the, the hardness of their own hearts. Uh, but we saw that that was even predicted by God, uh, that the prophet Isaiah uh, prophesied that Israel would reject the Messiah, and that was according to God's plan, because Israel's rejection led the gospel to go forth to all of the nations. Now, we studied that indictment, and now we're going to look at the exception that immediately follows it. And even though uh, the nation as a whole didn't believe Jesus, uh, there were some, uh, and we're told here that that many of the leaders or rulers, this word is used to speak of the the Jewish Sanhedrin in chapter 3, verse 1 of John, uh, that many of these men believed in Jesus. Uh, In John chapter 3, verse 1, we saw that Nicodemus, a member of the council, a member of these leaders, uh, and one of the most uh, prominent teachers in all of Israel came to see Jesus. And then in John chapter 7, uh, verses 50 to 52, Nicodemus, as they're in, indicting and speaking against Jesus, Nicodemus kind of raises his hand and, and says to them, Well, our law does not judge a man unless it, it first hears him and, and knows that uh, what he is doing, does it? And they answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So Nicodemus is kind of there hovering in the background of Jesus' ministry. We see him in John chapter 3. He pops his head up again in John chapter 7, questioning to the rest of the Sanhedrin, like, do we really need to condemn him? Like, shouldn't we kind of hear him out? And they try to put him in his place. And then uh, John chapter 19, after uh, Jesus uh, is crucified, verses 38 to 40, said this, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. 
And Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture uh, of myrrh and, and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Uh, and so we see the, these two members of the Sanhedrin, uh, probably among uh, these uh, of the, the many who had believed in Jesus. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says this, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So there was a, a time where there were many of the, the Jewish leaders who were uh, in their hearts convinced by what Jesus said, uh, but they were not willing to, to go on the record. And they were not willing to, to stand and say, I believe the claims that Jesus is making, that he is the Son of God and the Messiah. They didn't want to do that. And the Apostle John is telling us here that, that Israel's rejection of Jesus was not without a small remnant. That's what God always does. He always preserves a, a, a small remnant. But this remnant, what we see, they have a very, very weak faith. Uh, they are full of timidity. Uh, and uh, what we're going to see, even from the passages that we looked at, they are secret believers for a time, but they don't stay as secret believers. Uh, the secret believers have to eventually move to be public believers. That's what Jesus calls us to. They eventually profess Christ and live for Him regardless of the danger that they face. And as we study this passage, we're, we're going to see this weak, faint-hearted faith, and we're going to see what causes it. And we're going to see that there is a connection that exists between our faith, between our fear, and between our love. And we're going to see specifically two perspectives on what connects all of these things. And both of these perspectives are true, uh, and each of them is going to give some insight into our own souls and into our own uh, inner walk and our own faith in Christ. The first of these perspectives is found in verse 42. You can say that man's perspective uh, is that weak faith uh, is a fear problem. If you look at verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. See, there is, a, there is a human explanation for their weak faith. If you were to ask any one of these men uh, later on, like, why did you not uh, stand up and follow Jesus at that moment? Why didn't you walk out and leave the Sanhedrin? What would they have said? I was afraid. I didn't want to be cast out of the synagogue. And these religious leaders, they believed in Jesus, that they were convinced in their heads and in their hearts, but they were afraid of the Pharisees. So they were not confessing. They refused to profess who Jesus truly was in, in their hearts. But more specific than just that they were afraid of the Pharisees, they were afraid of what the Pharisees could do to them. Right? They weren't afraid that the Pharisees were going to uh, uh, immediately assault them. They, they were afraid that the, the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the... Uh, the religious leaders who were in control, they were the, the teachers in the synagogue system throughout the land of Israel. Uh, these are the ones who are boots on the ground. The Sadducees and the, and the priests are the ones who were in the, the temple uh, and, and leading there, the more the political leaders. The, the Pharisees were the ones who were, in essence, the, 
the, the local rabbi, the local pastors uh, of the people of Israel. And the Pharisees had the power to exclude people from the synagogue. Uh, and so the synagogue was also the hub of Jewish cultural life. And to be thrown out of the synagogue uh, was to be a cultural outcast. It was to be ostracized from Jewish society. Back in John 9, we see that this very threat of being kicked out of the synagogue, uh, this is what led uh, the parents of the man who was born blind. Uh, this threat of being kicked out it led them to, in essence, say, like, we don't know what's happened. That We don't want to go on the record about what has taken place in the life of our son. If you, if you turn back to, to John chapter 9, if you look at verse 20. So his parents asked, answered the, 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 in trying to figure out what has happened in this miracle. Uh, the Pharisees go and investigate, and they're questioning his parents. And his parents, uh, in verse 20, answered and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. And how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So this was a, this was a very serious threat. And if you think about what the, what the Pharisees had demanded here, now the Pharisees had created a culture uh, in which they, they demanded the allegiance of everyone. And they demanded that everyone join them in rejecting Jesus. And anyone who would not join them in rejecting Jesus would be put out of the synagogue. Now, a confession of faith in Jesus was a confession of faith against the prevailing culture that the Pharisees were, were teaching and promoting within Israel. And the Pharisees rightly understood that Jesus was a countercultural figure. And, and to be with Jesus is to be against any and every culture that is rooted in man's wisdom. Uh, and in Jesus' time, uh, the, the culture of his day that he was speaking against, uh, you could call it Second Temple Judaism. Uh, a man-made religion that was built upon uh, the traditions and the teachings of men. Listen to, to Mark chapter 7. They, uh, in Mark chapter 7, the, the, the Pharisees bring a charge against Jesus and his disciples. They say, hey, you're not washing your hands like you should. And Jesus says, you shouldn't even worry about that. And he brings this counter indictment against them. He said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they neglect, do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And the Judaism that was taught by the Pharisees and enculturated in Israel at that time was not based upon the Old Testament. That's something key that we have to remember. Uh, they weren't building upon the Old Testament. They were building upon uh, the rabbinic commentary, the, the, te the rabbinic teaching upon the Old Testament, but not the actual Old Testament. And what we, we need to see uh, is that Jesus is incompatible with any and every man-made culture or religion. Uh, this was also evident earlier in Mark's Gospel uh, when uh, some come up uh, and they ask uh, Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? Uh, Mark chapter 2, if you want to turn over there, and he, he gives them an answer. Uh, 2 uh, verse 21 
say, hey, why are you, why are you and your disciples not fasting like the disciples of John the Baptist? And Mark 2, verse 21, he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, that patch pulls away from it and the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And the idea is that you can't uh, take uh, an existing uh, worldview, an existing culture, uh, an existing religion, and just try and slap Jesus on there as a patch. You can't just take a man-made system and say, I'll put Jesus on, on the side, and that'll work. Jesus says, no, no. If you do that, what's going to happen? They're both going to be destroyed. Right? Uh, the, the, the new patch will destroy uh, the old uh, garment. And a worse tear results. Then in the very next verse, 22, he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts a new wine into fresh wineskins. If you try and... So you can't add Jesus as a patch uh, to, to your life or to an existing worldview or religion or culture. And you can't try and uh, mix Jesus in with uh, an existing culture either. You can't pour uh, new wine into an old wineskin. It'll destroy both. You can't have a, a, a mixture of, Jew, of Jesus and a man-made religion. If you pour Jesus in, he's going to destroy anything that you try and mix with it. And we have to understand that every human culture understands this. And every human culture is naturally against Christ. Uh, and this is be- because uh, you cannot have a culture without a cult. Now, we typically use the word cult uh, as a kind of a, an extreme religious uh, sect. But the, the word itself just refers to a form of worship. So every single, single culture has a form of worship. Uh, they, they have uh, beliefs. Uh, and things that they are striving for. And just because you cannot identify the cult of worship in a given culture doesn't mean that it's not there. If you're trying to figure out what a given culture worships and what they're uh, uh, built upon, uh, just, just try to identify uh, what they want you to confess or what they uh, keep you from confessing. Right? See, the, the Jews, uh, their big issue here uh, was that they didn't want anybody to confess that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. If, if they confess that, they're confessing against what they have built. You look and see what a culture wants you to confess. You look and see what a culture wants you to celebrate. You'll easily and, and very quickly begin to see uh, the cult uh, underneath the culture. And human cultures uh, use fear... To try and conform you to get you to obey. That is, that is true in every century and in every culture. And the threat of being cast out, of being ostracized by the culture, is an ever-present threat by uh, every man-made culture. Back, back in 2014, uh, Brendan Eich uh, was hired as the CEO of uh, Mozilla, uh, the company behind the, the Firefox uh, web browser. Uh, and he lasted as CEO all of nine days. And it, he was forced to resign his position. Why? Uh, so six years prior to that, in 2008, he had given $1,000 in support of Proposition 8, 
which was a ballot initiative that sought to define uh, marriage as being between one man and one woman, which passed, by the way, uh, in 2008 in California. And so because he gave $1,000 six years prior uh, to this ballot initiative, uh, there was an online petition and immediate outcries against him. And that, that online petition gathered almost 75,000 signatures very, very quickly. And the petition said, CEO Brendan Ike should make an unequivocal statement of support for marriage equality. And if he cannot, he should resign. And if he will not, the board should fire him immediately. If I might paraphrase that in a different way, if he doesn't join us in rejecting God's definition of marriage, then he should be fired immediately. Cast him out of the synagogue. Back in 2016, at Shawnee State University in Ohio, uh, the university disciplined a Christian professor, Dr. Nicholas Merriweather, uh, for not uh, addressing a male student according to his preferred feminine pronouns. The school disciplined Dr. Merriweather and called him to use the student's preferred pr- pronouns, and Dr. Merriweather continued to refuse. I might uh, paraphrase their demand in this way. If you don't join us in rejecting God's definition of male and female, then you will be fired. Ultimately, a, a lawsuit ensued, and after three years in courts, and actually just last month, Dr. Merriweather won, uh, won his case and was awarded a large uh, sum for damages. Happy to hear that, but there, there's a, I could have gone on and on and on with uh, illustrations of this threat of being cast out. The threat of being ostracized. Some of you may be in uh, work positions. Uh, some of you may be in, in neighborhoods uh, or uh, within family settings where, where you feel that pressure. Uh, where the, the threat of being an outcast is very, very real. If you're going to stand uh, for Christ, if you're going to say that you're going to follow Him, there's going to be a cost to it. Uh, and if we're honest, it, it's very, very easy to give in to that pressure, Right? very easy to try and fly under the radar. That's what most of us like to do. I don't want to stir up any problems. I don't want any problems and situations uh, on this Christmas or Thanksgiving. Uh, let's just not bring certain things up. Let's just not, uh, not talk about certain things in the workplace or uh, as we gather in our neighborhood. Uh, it's easy to try and fly under the radar when there are big consequences for popping up on someone's radar as a Christian. Again, if we're, if we're honest, do any of us want to be laughed at? Do any of us want to be whispered about? Do any of us want to be maligned? Show of hands, anybody? We want people to, to like us. We want people to respect us and to appreciate us. And in the moments when we remain silent out of fear of men... And if, we, if we're honest, we, we start to see those things and we feel guilty, right? You ever had one of those situations? Like, oh, I should have said something there. I, I held my tongue. I, I was too quiet when I should have spoken. And, and sometimes in those moments that we miss, we kind of chalk it up to a, a weak faith. Like, oh, I just wish I had more faith. But in those moments, I think we need to probe our hearts a little bit more deeply. Why was it that our faith was weak at that time? 
It's a wonderful book by Ed Welch. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. It says, in those moments, we are more concerned about looking stupid, which is a fear of people, than we are about acting sinfully, which would be a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. The, the fear of man brings a snare. Compare that with Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Compare that with Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, we must not allow fear to we- weaken our faith and obedience to Jesus. Followers of Christ need to be prepared to be cultural outcasts. Uh, We need to be prepared uh, for these threats that are being made against us to be ostracized, to be thrown off of social media, uh, to to maybe lose our jobs. I've said it in the past. We need to have a theology of getting fired. We cannot be secret believers. Secret faith in Jesus will not suffice. Again, you may be a secret believer for a time, but that's, that's the key, only for a time. Now, we eventually have to go on the record that the call of Christian discipleship is to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Hey, followers of Jesus, again, start out as secret followers, but they eventually must profess publicly. And again, that can be a, a scary step. We don't, we, we don't have to minimize that. Uh, it can be scary and intimidating. Now, but this is what Christ calls us to, uh, to fear him more than we fear people. Uh, and honestly, the only way that we grow... Uh, or or the, the fear of man diminishes is to grow in our fear of the Lord. And you might say, well, I don't get to choose what I'm afraid of. Well, I think the Bible would disagree with you on that point. Proverbs chapter 1, uh, verses 20, verse 29 says uh, that they, they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Uh, the fear of the Lord is a choice. Now, and in that moment where... Uh, where we can choose to speak up or choose to re- remain silent, uh, what are we choosing? What fear are we choosing in that moment? The fear of man rather than the fear of people. I'm sorry, the fear of the Lord. And we, we choose what, who and what we will fear moment by moment and day by day. As we've been reading through Deuteronomy, right? Uh, there's this, uh, these twin commands that are, that are repeated often, right? Right? Uh, Moses speaks uh, to Israel and says, Do not fear the people of the land. Remember, why did, the, why did Israel have to wander around in the desert for 40 years? Because the first time they went up, who were they afraid of? The people. Uh, but they weren't afraid of God. And so there's this, this command, Do not fear the people. Uh, and then the other command is, Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord your God. And obey Him. That's the choice that they have to make. And it's repeated over and over again. Why is it repeated often? Because it needs to be. What's our default position? We fear God, not enough. And we fear people, 
way too much. Right? That, that's our default position, and that's what the Lord has to command us out of. And he has to command us and say, don't fear the people, fear God. Over and over again. And we have to take those commands to heart. When we are weak in faith, we need to examine what we are fearing. Again, that's usually how we, how we phrase things. That's our human perspective, to see weak faith as a fear problem. And it, and it is indeed a fear problem. But there's another element to it, a second perspective that's also true when it comes to weak faith. And it's seen in chapter 12 of John, verse 43. You could call this God's perspective. That weak faith is a love problem. Verse 43 says, For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. So immediately following the description of what was happening and taking place among the leaders, uh, verse 42 is just kind of like, this is what was happening. Uh, they weren't confessing because they were afraid. Verse 43 is, a, is an inspired commentary that, that goes a level deeper. Uh, still a true perspective, but, but it's going uh, a little bit more into what is really taking place. Uh, and they spoke of uh, fear in verse 42, and this verse speaks about love. And so fear, you could say, is an emotional choice. Love is an affectional choice. Both of them are choices. Fear leads you to make a decision based upon what you want to avoid, right? I'm afraid of getting that. I don't want that, so I'm going to do this. Love leads you to make a decision based upon what you want to obtain, right? You're going to be driven to something in love, and you're going to be driven away from something by fear. And so verse 42, we saw that the leaders uh, feared getting kicked out. That's what they wanted to avoid. Uh, but what did they love? Uh, that's what we see in verse 43. They loved a certain kind of glory. And again, just, just pausing here for a moment, we, we have to see two sides of this coin. That what we fear and what we love are, are two sides of the coin. And what we desire to obtain, we will also fear losing. And in verse 43, there's an evaluation being made concerning the, the religious leaders who were secret believers. Say, hey, there's a comparison of their two, two affections, right? Uh, and uh, these hard affections are going to be weighed in the scales. And one of them is going to come out greater and one of them is going to come out uh, lesser. Uh, and when it speaks of uh, the glory of men and the glory of God, it's using glory to refer to the idea of honor or praise or uh, approval. Okay? Uh, you, can, you can seek that from men or you can seek that from God. And there's a divine evaluation uh, concerning what they loved more. Here, that they loved the glory of men more than the glory of God. Which means that they, they worshipped men rather than worshipping God. We're reading through Deuteronomy, one of the most famous passages in the entire Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Right? But if you are fearing men, what are you not doing? You are not loving the Lord with your entire being. And because they worshipped men rather than God, they did whatever it took to keep the praise of men. So because they loved the approval of men, they'll do whatever it takes to maintain that and to keep that. 
And if that means silencing their conscience regarding who Jesus is, they'll do it. They didn't want to risk being put out of their culture and their society. A couple of, couple of things we can uh, infer from this statement in John 12. First, that there, there is a glory that comes from men. Okay? Uh, it's a real thing, but it's a fleeting thing. If you turn over with me to, to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus addresses this in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's one of those exact numbers, right? If you, if you are working to receive praise from men, what heavenly reward do you have? Nothing. Uh, and so the, the glory that comes from men, it is a real thing, but it's a fleeting thing. If that's what motivates you, you're going to get it. But that is all that you are going to get. That's what's said in verse 2, Matthew 6. Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be glorified by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Right? They're doing it to be seen by men, and the full amount of their reward is just, just the applause of men. That's what they're wanting, that's what they're getting, and that's all that they will get. The same thing is said concerning prayer in verse, uh, I think, 4? No, verse 5. Same thing is said of fasting in verse 16, that they have their reward in full. You're going for the, the glory and the praise of men. That's what you'll get. And again, this is, this is a natural human tendency, right? Anybody here watch the Academy Awards? Probably not, but you probably heard about what happened, I would venture to say. Uh, but, but you think about the Academy Awards, uh, the, the, the cultural elites gathering together to give themselves a collective pat on the back, right? It, it, is, it is a self-glorifying uh, celebration, and that we are all called to watch, but fewer and fewer people are watching it. Why? Because it gets kind of obnoxious, right? And, and the, the, the patting themselves on the back becomes so obvious uh, that, that uh, we don't want to watch. But ultimately, if you, if you do what the culture applauds, you will get their applause. Yet by pursuing the approval of the culture, we end up being shaped by the culture. Right? To get the, the approval of the culture, you have to love, think, uh, and speak and act according to the culture's rules. So there is a glory that comes from men. It's a real thing. It's a fleeting thing. But there is also a glory that comes from God. Uh, and it's a real thing, and it is an eternal thing. And when we are motivated to act out of love for the glory that comes from God... Over and over again in that passage in Matthew 6, it says, If you do things to be seen by men, that is the extent of your reward. But if you do things in secret, your Father in heaven will see you and He will reward you. And that reward is laid up in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, that, that is the eternal reward that we are called to pursue. And when we pursue and obey God and we're, we're seeking His approval... We end up being shaped by God. 
And because if we're seeking God's approval, we're going to love, think, speak, and act according to His Word. We're going to become more and more like His Son. We become like what we worship. I said that over and over again in this portion in John's Gospel because that's what John wants us to see. There are a couple of things that we must take warning of here. Number one, we must not love the praise of men. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You cannot serve two masters. If you're trying to please men, you cannot also at the same time please God. Not one or the other, or it is one or the other, not both. Okay, so we must not love the praise of men. Secondly, loving idols instead of God will blind us to God. You could say idols make you stupid. You turn back over to John chapter 5. Verse 44. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you do not seek the glory that is from the only God. Hey, if you're seeking glory from men, if you're trying to pat each other on the back and glorify one another, what is that going to make you blind to? The glory of God. You're not going to to pursue the praise and approval of God if you're only seeking the praise and approval of men. One or the other. And I'll say say this as well. We have to... Uh, we must not love the praise of men. We have to understand that uh, that will blind us to God. And thirdly, I would say that we, we have to guard our hearts against our strengths. It's not as obvious. The things that we are good at can easily become uh, an occasion for others to praise us. Right? We do something well, people praise us for it, and then what happens in our hearts? We like that praise. So what do we naturally want to do? We want to do the things that we do well so we receive more praise from men. And so we, we strive to get better and better at what we're already good at. And, and this is not to say that we must suppress our strengths. This is to say that we have to guard our hearts. That the things that you will be most praised for are the things that you're good at. But our God-given strengths and talents were not given to us to bring glory to our name. They were given to us to bring glory to God. Now, we have to guard our hearts against that. Especially, I would say, parents, just be aware of what, you're, what is it you're praising your children for. Uh, you're going to be able to, to shape their, their affections and what they strive uh, after uh, in, in what you affirm, what, what you praise them for. So just, just be aware there. But we must guard against uh, idolizing people. Leon Morris put it this way, to love the glory of people above the glory of God is the supreme disaster. But the solution to the problem is, is seen in the comparison made here, right? It says that they love the glory of men more than the glory of God. Uh, and there is the solution. That God must grow bigger. People must grow smaller. How does that happen? Well, we need to remember the glory of Christ. 
Uh, and even in, in the flow of this passage, uh, when it says in verse 43 that they love the glory of men more than the glory of God, just look back up at verse 41, because glory was mentioned there as well. And what, what was said there, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, speaking of Christ. We must look and behold Jesus for who he is and all that he is. Uh, beholding his glory uh, helps us to see that he is the one who can give us far greater rewards. Well, why would I seek the glory of this, this person over here when I can pursue the glory that comes from the eternal God. We need to remember the glory of Christ. We need to remember the promise of heavenly rewards. We need to be convinced in our hearts that that heavenly rewards are far superior to earthly rewards, right? I I may be able to get the the applause of men, but that's all I'm going to get. And that doesn't last for long, does it? It leaves you unsatisfied, leaves you with a desire to do more and more and more, to receive more and more applause. But God's rewards will satisfy because they are eternal. We, we need to cultivate the affections of our hearts so that we continue to grow in our love for God and in striving and see, to seek His approval. Uh, and again, we have to be a little, little careful here because how do, we, how do we gain God's approval? Right? No, first and foremost, uh, by faith. Okay? Now, we, we don't work and labor for God's approval. Uh, the gospel, faith in who Jesus is and what he has done, that is what brings us uh, God's approval. Nothing else does it. Uh, But now walking after Jesus in faith, we don't do that uh, to get uh, justified in God's sight, but, but we do that to honor and glorify him out of thanksgiving, not to earn approval. Approval is given by God's grace. We have to keep that in mind. But weak and faint-hearted faith uh, is a product of these two connected realities taking place in our hearts. We are weak in faith because we fear people more than we fear God. We are weak in faith because we love the approval of men more than the approval of God. If I were to, to ask each Christian here, you want to be known as a good Christian. Each of you would undoubtedly say, yes, of course. Of course I want that. But, but there's a, a key assumption that needs to be defined in that question. What does a good Christian look like? See, our, our culture is trying to tell us uh, what a good Christian should be like, right? Uh, the, the Jews of Jesus' time, what did they say a good Jew is like? Really, in the eyes of the Pharisees, a good Jew is one who rejects Jesus as the Messiah. Right? And again, any, any human culture, that's going to be what they're going to call us to. What would our culture say is a good Christian? Our culture would say a good Christian is one who, in essence, rejects Jesus as the Messiah. One who is not really serious about following Jesus. A good Christian is... Uh, one who ag- agrees with the culture. That, that's the way the culture would define it. But again, that is the exact opposite of how God would define it, right? Now, we may act uh, to, and to receive the, the approval and the applause of, of men, and, and you may have many in your workplace, in your neighborhood of, oh, yeah, like they're such a good Christian. 
But the, the definition and the, the, the standard of measurement that really matters is not the culture's, but God's. Right? You, you can have the culture saying you are uh, a wonderful, loving Christian, but you may never hear, well done, good and faithful servant from God. And his opinion matters far more. Many years ago, there was a story in National Geographic magazine about hunting for honey in, in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains. In, in those foothills, the, the world's largest honeybees are found. But to, to get to the honey made by these bees, uh, the photographer for National Geographic, uh, his name is Eric Valley, he had to hang off of a 395-foot cliff. And he's next to another local man named uh, Manny Lal, He's a native beekeeper, and he's on a rope ladder, and he's doing what he's done for decades. You think about this. When you're trying to go and get honey from bees, as you're getting the honey, what's swarming around you? Bees. Yes. The largest honeybees in the world. And so Manny, the, the, the native beekeeper, he, he's calm and collected. He's done this before. But this photographer for National Geographic is not so calm. He describes the moment in the magazine. He said, there were so many bees, I was afraid I might freak out. But I knew if I did, I would be dead. So I took a deep breath and relaxed. Getting stung would be better than finding myself at the bottom of the cliff. Right? He chose what he was going to be afraid of in that moment. We're all in a similar situation. But all too many of us are afraid of the bees. All too many of us uh, are more concerned with the people who swarm about us each and every day. And we try and protect ourselves from their sting. But what's the danger in doing that? We may fall away from God. We need to be most concerned with who God is, with who and who He is calling us to be, what He is calling us to do. And we are commanded to fear Him, not to fear people. We are commanded to love and pursue His praise, His glory, His approval, rather than the praise and the approval of men. The fear of man is what? A snare. Let's not walk into it. 